Well, hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, uh, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my humble studio nestled somewhere within the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is Friday, October the 27th, and we're rounding out just a fantastic week. I've been so blessed to have a number of uh, prophecy experts and uh, geopolitical experts and uh, folks uh, commenting and uh, giving us their insights on all that is going on uh, in Israel. It's basically been Israel week here at NBW, and uh, we are going to finish strong. We kind of saved the best for last, uh, frankly, although it's been it's been amazing, the guests that we've had. I hope you uh, check them out. On Monday, we had Tom Hughes uh, talking about why Israel matters. On Tuesday, we had Dr. Randall Price talking about God's plan for Israel's future. And then uh, yesterday, we had Bill Salas talking about Israel's enemies. And today, We've got John Haller. Uh, what a blessing to have John on. He's going to be talking about Israel again and, and what happens next for Israel and some of his insights and some of the things that he's seeing from his sources. I'll bring John on here in just a moment. Uh, he really needs no introduction. I'll give you some of his uh, websites uh, here in just a moment. But uh, as we get started, as as always here at NBW, we like to go to the Word of God to kind of kick off uh, the podcast. And so I want us to take a look at a, a passage that is so central for understanding God's plan for Israel. And that's uh, from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapters 9 uh, through 11. You know, Romans is obviously uh, often considered Paul's magnum opus. Uh, he had not visited Rome at the time he wrote the letter under the inspiration of the Spirit, but uh, it's a pretty easy book to outline. It's really a fascinating, powerful doctrinal treatise. The first three chapters talk about how sinful mankind is and how hopeless we are. If you started to read the book of Romans and got interrupted after chapter 3, you'd spend the rest of your life depressed because uh, uh, it does not leave much hope until you get to chapters 4 and 5 where Paul gives us the answer, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he talks about salvation by grace through faith. In chapters 6 to 8, he talks about uh, the believer and our struggle with sin and how we can live out the new life that we have in Christ. It's all about progressive sanctification. Chapters 9 to 11, where we're going to uh, just dip in for a moment here and talk about Israel. Uh, Paul answers the question that might be on his readers' minds and on our minds 2,000 years later. What about Israel? Where do they fit into the equation? And then he closes it out in chapters 12 to 16 with some practical advice for the church and for believers in the present age. But in chapters 9 through 11, he reaffirms the fact that God is not through with Israel. Yes, Israel has been temporarily set aside. They rejected uh, the Messiah because they did not have faith. That's what he tells us at the end of chapter 9. In chapter 10, he reaffirms his own personal impassioned plea and desire that all Israel would be de de delivered into the kingdom. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Saved there means delivered. He's talking uh, collectively nationally, it's in the plural, they, and of course the word saved is used 108 times uh, in the New Testament, more than half the time, 58% of the time, it means physical deliverance or temporal deliverance. It does not always mean eternal salvation. In English, uh, if you grew up in church, you're, you're kind of conditioned to think that the word saved means eternally, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about Israel's national deliverance as he 
goes on to make clear, and it concludes in chapter 11 with talking about how one day the Deliverer will come out of Zion and deliver Israel, and they will be ushered into their land in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. But chapter 10 makes it clear that before they can uh, experience national deliverance, they must first uh, go through individual belief. And the reason that they have not uh, been delivered in the kingdom yet is that they're they're there in unbelief. They've not believed the gospel. Some have. There's a, a remnant in every age, and Paul considers himself part of that remnant in chapter 9. But as a whole, the nation cried, crucify him, crucify him, rather than Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Paul quotes Joel chapter 2 and reminds us that one day Israel as a nation will call on the name of the Lord at the second coming, and they will be regathered into the land in belief, and they will experience the long-awaited global kingdom of peace, righteousness, and judgment when the entire government of the world is under the on the shoulders of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Savior. But before they can call on him, they must first believe. Romans 10, 14, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And uh, But they have not all believed the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Then the pivotal chapter, uh, chapter 11, Paul makes it clear that Israel's rejection is not final. In verse 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Uh, whenever you see the phrase certainly not in Greek, it's the, it's the Greek phrase meganoita, and it means uh, that Paul is affirming a proper a premise, but a false conclusion from that premise. And that basically describes replacement theology right there. He's saying, yes, Israel stumbled. They crucified the Messiah. They rejected him at his first advent. But that does not follow then that God is through with them and has abrogated all of his promises to them. Not at all. There is a future. In fact, he Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that it's through their fall at the first advent that he is uh, provoking them to jealousy by bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And the church age as a whole is a microcosm, a foreshadowing of the glory to come in the kingdom, so that the second time around, the Jews will receive the king because they'll say, I want that kind of intimacy that believers in the church age have had for 2,000 years. He goes on to say, if their fall at the first advent is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, well, then how much more their fullness? In other words, a day is coming when they won't fall. They will receive uh, the Messiah and have personal faith, followed by a corporate calling on the name of the Lord, and a corporate confession, you might say, and then they will be delivered into the land. He adds again, if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, you haven't seen anything yet. You know, It's going to be amazing when Israel uh, is returned to the land, Christ reigns on the throne in the rebuilt temple, as Ezekiel describes, and what a glorious day. Uh, that will be. He also says in verse 23 of chapter 11, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted back into the place of God's blessing. Right now, the church is center stage in God's plan of the ages, but that's uh, we're going to be uh, exiting uh, stage left at some point, or I guess you might say stage up, stage north when we get raptured. Uh, and then the spotlight shifts once again uh, to Israel. Uh, and he, he very plainly says that one day God is going to graft Israel back in again to the olive tree that is rightly theirs. They are not the olive tree, as replacement theologians suggest, but it is their proper place of blessing. You can't be grafted in to something and be that something at the same time. So he says they will be grafted in again to their own olive tree. All along, God's plan for Israel was to be a light to the pagan world around them, to bring salvation to the world. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. Uh, and one day, 
uh, they will receive them. And so then here's the key verse, the last little passage here. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, Romans 11, 25, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Not permanently, not irrevocably, but in part, meaning there are some Jews today that get saved as part of the church, and also until a certain time. And then he goes on to say, then all Israel will be delivered, as it is written, quoting from Jeremiah here, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and that's Jesus Christ. So we know there's a future for national Israel. We know that God has outlined in, in the prophetic pages of Scripture how things were un, will unfold. And I got to tell you, uh, John, I have to believe that right now we are seeing the early rumblings and beginnings. Of course, God's been setting the stage for this uh, throughout human history, particularly 1948 with uh, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. But these days, with what's going on and all the drumbeats of war, I have to believe we are on the verge of uh, these end times prophecies all kind of coalescing together. John, thanks for being with us. You can learn more about John at on Rumble at Real FBC. He's, of course, at Fellowship Bible Church as one of the teachers there. He does a weekly prophecy update. You can find him on YouTube at Fellowship Bible Chapel. You can go to their website, fbchapel.com. They also have an app. Just search the app store for Fellowship Bible Church. John, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, JB. All right. So you kind of heard me give just a quick theological overview of why we believe there's a future for national Israel. Uh, kind of dive in and give us your perspective. I know you've been doing a lot of interviews. Uh, uh, kind of give us your perspective on what you see happening and where you think it's going. Well, it's, it's interesting. I'll just sort of build on what you were just talking about, because Sunday we're going through the book of Acts. So I, uh, as an elder pastor teacher at our church, I, I preach once a month. Uh, because I want to be tied to the text as much as possible, because it's easy, you know, when you're doing the prophecy thing to kind of wander far afield. <laughs> and we're in Acts chapter th end of 13 and 14, where Paul is, you know, in, up in, in Asia Minor, uh, going through the cities on his first missionary journey, and he talks about uh, Jesus as a light to the Gentiles. And that was well-received by a lot of the Gentiles, but some of the religious Jews were really ticked off about it. And as I kind of unpack that, I went back into, uh, there's a book I have, and I think I got it from Randy Price, who was on your show the other day, uh, from his ministry, uh, by Roger Liebel, who is a, a Dutch guy, and he wrote a book, The Messiah and the Temple, the typology of the second temple, uh, temple and what it can teach us about Jesus. And in there, he talked about the, in the second temple period, the Jews had built up, uh, you know, they had the first temple, and the second temple had something that the first temple didn't have. It had a wall of partition. So before that, Gentiles could come and offer sacrifice if they believed in the God of Israel, but the Jews in the Second Temple period did away with that and brought built up the wall of partition. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians, that Jesus came to tear down that wall of partition. And one of my points was, in the church today and in Judaism, there seems to be uh, Jesus tore down the wall and everybody keeps trying to build it back up. And eventually that's going to be taken down in this end time. And it's it's kind of a mystery how it's going to happen, particularly in light of everything, but I believe what Romans 11 says. And so it's one of my favorite passages of scripture, hmm. but I'm, I'm just looking what you were talking, I was just kind of perusing my Twitter feed. It's full of replacement theology people today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't follow these people. You know, it's the amill, post-mill, replacement theology, Jew-hating, anti-Semitic parts 
of the so-called evangelical church. And my Twitter feed is full of this. And I said Sunday, this Israel thing going forward is going to be the most divisive thing in the church. Mm. It it will it will divide the church almost unlike anything has divided the church to this point. So it's and I I do think that God the called out people of God, whether they come from the Gentiles or Israel, it's a remnant thing. And we're sort of in that remnant time where it's it's going to be an increasingly smaller group, I think, that gets it. Yeah, I think you're right. If I can just interject here, I sure. saw that early on after the October 7th date, uh, uh, you know, very early on, you started to see the mainstream media really pushing people to the extremes. And uh, mm-hmm. I've even seen it a little bit just in some uh, feedback I've gotten from listeners, uh, very little, but, uh, you know, four or five different emails where uh, people just basically it's all or nothing. You you uh, you absolutely need to kill every olive-skinned Palestinian, even if they're not Hamas, and just wipe them all off the face of the earth. And we hate every, and it's just this vengeful attitude, uh, which is understandable given what these horrific terrorists have done. I, I sort of understand it, you know, intellectually and emotionally, but I think spiritually speaking and biblically speaking, we have to be a little more nuanced. But then, then you've got the other extreme, which is what you're talking about, which is the rise in anti-Semitism, it's always been there, but man, the guys like Chuck Baldwin and some of these others are just out there. Rick Wiles of True News. Oh, Rick Wiles. Yeah. I mean, he is, uh, it's unbelievable the kind of stuff they're saying. So uh, I think it's, I think you're right. I think uh, if we thought the divisiveness in the church over COVID and the gene altering bioinjections was something, you haven't seen anything yet as this thing emerges, but continue. Well, so that's, that's the thing that's going to be. So Right now, what's going on in Israel is uh, just an absolute, it's a mess. It mm-hmm. really is a mess. I mean, we can we talk about the intelligence and operational failures that took place uh, that led up to October 7. I do think that we need to give the Persians, uh, the Iranians some credit. They designed a pretty, masterfully designed a pretty interesting operation that took place, uh, even without the operational failures. I mean, they... And and they used uh, Michael Doran on he has a, a Rumble channel called Turning Point, and he was on with Gaddy Taub, who was used to be a person of the left, and now his uh, is a right wing commentator in Israel. And I don't think he's a religious Jew, by the way. I think he's secular, but he's conservative. And he's he's like, listen, you know, this was a uh, unsophisticated technology used in highly sophisticated ways. And so what they did was they took some of the lessons from the Ukrainian war. For example, they they go to um, they have Walmarts in <laughs> in Gaza, but they someplace they go and they get a quadcopter. You can buy it at Best Buy and they attach a two and a half pound RPG to it. And they learn from the Ukraine war that if you drop that directly on top of a tank, a two and a half pound RPG can destroy a tank and kill everybody inside mm. because the tanks are vulnerable. They were, they were designed with that flaw because nobody expected when they were all designed and built that, um, to attack from above, you could be yeah. attacked from above. Yeah. yeah. And now it's very easy. And so they did that with like a lot of the guard towers and that type of thing. They took them out. Um, and I think they were all these rocket attacks that they've had over the last few years while they did that, they were gathering intelligence and then with people in our government, which 
I'm not sure whose side our government is on. I'm pretty sure it's not my side most of the time. Absolutely. So Sunday in my update, I played a speech that Anth part of a speech that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had given at J Street. And J Street, they they say that we're an is a Jewish organization, but they're anti-Israel in the extreme. And he said, Well, look at all the good things we're doing. Like we've helped Israel to give Gazans work permits to work in Israel. And so it got up to where there was, I don't know, 18, 22,000 Gazans coming across almost every day to work. And what they were doing was they were gathering intel. They were going back and giving them charts of how these kibbutzes and communities were organized, where their weapons store was and everything. And then when the when the fence was breached, and I, I think that it was, it was sort of a, if I could just try to do it without all the different components everybody wants to add to it it was a lack of creativity in the intel community as to how this could be like they might have planned for 12 15 40 50 coming across but not 2500 and not 2500 palestinian civilians many of whom had worked there and came back and killed people in the community hmm. and it's having so give the give the persians in the in the hamas guys some credit for the design of their operation. It was uh, in a in a very sick sense, it was masterful. And the things, I mean, JB, I don't know if you've seen the things I was given an ar uh, access to an archive of some videos and things that the Israeli government has taken place because I was at the Christian Media Summit last year, uh, which, you know, True News would say, oh, you're just, you're just, you get talking points now from, and I saw somebody who's anti-Israel saying, all you pastors who are pro-Israel, you get talking points from the government. And I'm like, did you get your memo this week, JV? <laughs> no, I, believe me, I, I'm the last guy who would be accused of touting any party line. I'm pretty, pretty controversial. <laughs> so I, you know, that it's all, it's it's just, all, we get them from the CIA and, and the government. So I guess I'm not on that list either. I'm not, I'm not on any list. I don't get invited to any of the secret society meetings or anything like that, but be that as it may, this, uh, what what they did was beyond cruel. I mean, raping women to the point that their mm. pelvises were broken, mm. burning women and children, binding them with wire, burning them together, throwing grenades into safe rooms, uh, it's shooting satanic. people just as they were driving down the street. It was just uh, it's, the carnage it's, is unbelievable. It's satanic. It's demonic to the core. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you, you talk about the the uh, creativity of Hamas and Iran funding it. But let's go one step further. I, I fully believe this is part of a Luciferian conspiracy mm -hmm. that is both biblical and historical. It's well documented in my first uh, Spirit of the Antichrist book. I talk about it extensively, documented, have over 50 pages of footnotes or bibliographic citations. And so, uh, yeah, when you've got that type of power, both globally and spiritually and satanically behind you, yeah, they they can accomplish a lot. And then, you know, as far as the hostages, uh, I mentioned yesterday on our, uh, or I guess it was Wednesday on our program, uh, that they were paying uh, the Palestinians uh, $10,000 a head to, to capture hostages or something like right. that. So, yeah. It's, well, and then, of course, the lady was released the other day, one of, one of the four, I think, that have been released thus far out of I think 230 that they have, or now Israel thinks that they have. And uh, she's an 85 year old lady, uh, lived down in the area near the Gaza fence. And I was down there in December. They took us down 
uh, to the Israeli base where they have their urban warfare center. And they took us over to the kibbutz that's nearest to the, the border fence. And we had lunch and a lady came and talked. And I actually think I saw her yesterday in D.C. talking to lawmakers about what happened. Uh, but, you know, that that was but she's a peace activist, you know, and she and she came in, she said, well, I was treated well. But how 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 credible is that when they're still holding her husband? Yeah. You know, at one point she says, well, it was hell that I went through to be there, but they treated me well. Well, they're holding her husband as a hostage. So you have to kind of temper her her remarks with that yeah and so, and you can't believe you you have to always be suspect let's just say of things that come out of dc and and official press briefings and things like that who can forget in the first gulf war uh how it later came out that with hollywood's backing they hired an actress to testify before congress about the incubator babies which turned out to be completely false and so people right. watch c-span and they watch these test you know testimonies and they assume uh, the best that's what we're prone to do but let's always remember there is a, there's a lot more at play than what we see it's never about what it's about Right. And there's a massive propaganda war going on. I mean, the rocket, supposed rocket attack, or Israeli airstrike on the hospital in Gaza, which I think is completely fake. And I just saw there was a guy who put up some videos. And I just was sort of video of him now that's circulating in Palestinian telegram and media channels and social media. Look at this poor guy who's injured. Well, it's the same guy who was in a video, you know, marching around Gaza the other day. And, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. and, you know, then you you remember the videos, the the Pallywood videos where they have the uh, all the dead corpses under uh, tarps, you know, in, in a city in Israel, Palestine, quote, Palestine or Gaza. And then, you know, you see the one kind of person adjust reaching up and adjusting the tarp so it covers yeah. them up completely <laughs> and this is the, so it's hard to tell what's true and it, it's really hard and it's hard for us who try to sift through this to figure out what's true uh so we we have a thing at uh fbc we call it the department of corrections uh in the event that we put something up that's not true and we'll we'll try to rectify that but yeah well, i'm but thinking anyway, about right now so yesterday i was on alex newman which was kind of interesting and you know alex we did that conference down in texas together yep and so i'm i get on you know to wait in the back stage i guess of the of the zoom call and he said, well, I got a guest on before you, and then I'll get to you. Well, it's Mordecai Kadar. Mm. And Mordecai Kadar, if you don't know, he's a professor at Bar-Long University. He's about 72 years old, 71 years old. And he was in Israeli intelligence and the IDF for 30 years. But he's probably certainly in the top two leading Jewish experts on Islam and the Arabic culture. In the world, and, and probably one of the top experts in the world, bar none. He's incredibly intelligent. It's very interesting that six months ago in April, he put out an article, and he said, I'm sharing information that I got from somebody who doesn't live in Israel, and he goes through this. It's called, the article is at jns.org, in uh, Mordecai Kadar, K-E-D-A-R, and it's called Death to Israel, the Iranian Plan to Attack Israel. And the subtitle is, if the Israeli public wants to survive, it must prepare mentally and physically for war with the Iranian octopus. Mm. And Qadar understands that Iran really does want to destroy Israel, and they've been planning this. And as you mentioned, they probably planned this op for two years. 
they were gathering intel the whole time. Every time there was a rocket attack, they watched how people respond. They figured out where their safe rooms were. They figured out how the IDF responded. And and I don't know what the, and I've tried to figure out from people in Israel, like how many soldiers were stationed down there? And the bases that I've seen down there are pretty small. It, I don't. I doubt that 100 people are there. Hmm. But then what happens, what do the soldiers do when there's a rocket attack? Do they go run for cover? Because it was a massive rocket barrage that they did. So it's a, it's a masterful operation. But he talked about that and he said, this is what he said. This is what the battle plan that Kadar put out six months ago was based on what a, a conversation from a friend who lives in Europe, who used to be in Israeli military and intelligence. First, excuse me, and Lebanon, Hezbollah and Hamas with many thousands of missiles, some of them precision-guided UAVs. In Syria, 17 armed and ready combat units. In Yemen, the Houthis have Iranian long-range missiles and UAVs capable of reaching Israel. In Gaza, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad with missiles capable of disabling the Israeli defense forces and Israeli air force bases. And then they, they go on and they said, one of the first phase, there'll be the aerial one. And then he said, there'll be an invasion of ground from Syria, Lebanon, and Gaza. Hmm. We'll focus on Israeli settlements. And this has long been known that the war in the north will be uh, Hezbollah coming through the tunnels that they've drilled through bedrock up there and coming into communities and kidnapping people and taking them back to Lebanon to hold us hostages. Well, I don't think they thought that was going to happen in Gaza. Maybe they just didn't think it was going to happen in Gaza, or maybe they just ignored it. And I think Caroline Glick has done some pretty good analysis on this as well. She's got a, a program, Caroline Glick Show, at JNS uh, YouTube channel. And she just says, look, we we lost, we, we got deceived. At a minimum, we got deceived by Hamas, because everybody thought Hamas was going to be, we could work with them. And so Blinken's at J Street touting it to great applause and cheers that they have all these Gazans working in Israel. And that's how did they, that didn't age very well. About six weeks ago, uh, Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, did an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic. I played that clip last Sunday and he said, the is Israel today or the Middle East today is in a much calmer place than it has ever been in the last 20 than it has been in 20 years. Mm. Four weeks ago, tomorrow or today, I think this is playing on Friday, as I recall, mm -hmm. I lose track of what day it is. So four weeks ago, Netanyahu stood in the speaker podium at the General Assembly of the United Nations and said, he started off with the Deuteronomy passage about blessings and curses. And we know that was renewed and reaffirmed by Joshua and Shechem when uh, he had half, half the tribes on Mount Ebal and half the tribes on Mount Gerizim shouting the blessings and curses. And Netanyahu said, we're at the midst, we're on the verge of a blessing where we're going to have this peace agreement with Saudi Arabia as, and, it will it this will transform the Middle East. The same week, a couple of days before that, an interview played on Fox News. Brett Baer interviewed Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who, by the way, was his first interview in English, and he speaks pretty good English. <laughs> and he was saying, "This this is the greatest agreement that's that's been done on geopolitical since world, the end of World War II." <laughs> wow! Yeah, now, that 
that didn't age very well, any of those assessments. Now, I no, personally but- think that the thing with Saudi Arabia is going to come back. Saudi Arabia did, it was confirmed yesterday, shoot down one of the Houthi missiles from Yemen the other night, which is kind of unusual because it was clear it was going to Israel. But Saudi Arabia used, uh, I think it's the the Iron Dome that it got from the U.S. to shoot down one of the missiles or drones, uh, which is kind of unusual in the context of everything that's going on. So I think if Israel's successful in this war, the Saudi Arabia thing will come back, especially if the king passes away. The, Mohammed bin Salman is a much different, it's a generational change in Saudi Arabia. And yeah. I do think it's prophetic in many respects. And next week, by the way, I was reading the Financial Times uh, from London yesterday, which I think is one of the more important papers in the world. And they're talking about, well, you know, the big uh, financial investment initiative institute, which they call Davos in the desert, is next week in Riyadh, and it's going to go forward. Mm. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And then I think I showed you the front page of the Peninsula, which is the English paper in uh, English language paper in Qatar, which is the biggest uh, sponsor of the Muslim Brotherhood and everything, but trying to play both sides. We're negotiating, get the hostages out. Look what good guys we are. Look how good we are. We had the World Cup soccer thing here, even though they bribed half of Europe to get there, get the World Cup to Qatar last year. And there on the front page is the prime minister of Qatar, meeting with his good friend to discuss how we can cooperate and work together in the future. Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the pick of the week. Yeah, it really is. It it is. uh, It's one to save for sure for our future presentations uh, as we talk about the the World Economic Forum. But it really is complex. As you said, a lot of this hasn't aged well. Obviously, Kadar's uh, uh, article six months ago, that that was pretty prescient, it turns out. And, uh, uh, you know, I think this has been planned for some time. But what I what I see uh, kind of trying to interpret all these unusual alliances that are forming and statements that are being made and decisions like Saudi Arabia to knock down the rockets. I think the, the the leaders, the national leaders around the world, they all get that this thing is a powder keg, that it's it could easily evolve into a global conflagration, World War III. And so they are they are there. It's not. It's not monolithic. The Luciferian conspiracy is by no means monolithic. Where there's some guys reporting to Satan who then turn around and push buttons and things happen exactly like they want it. There are unexpected alliances and uh, competing agendas. And I think when you when you take a look at major world events like this, and really any big news item. There are three arenas that you need to always consider, and, and they're easy to remember because they all start with a P. You need to remember uh, the Luciferian plans, that there is, as the Bible says, and as they've said for thousands of years, a group of human beings, uh, evil, Satan-worshipping human beings that are conspiring with the devil himself to try to take over this world. And we, if you study them, you can kind of tell what their plans are. So you consider it from that angle. Secondly, obviously consider from Bible prophecy. And these aren't in any particular order, but God has given us his plan of the ages that we can see unfolding before our eyes. And then thirdly is geopolitics. And that's the hardest one to figure because there's so much power plays and people buying each other off and controlled agents. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's just unreal when you start to see things happening. So that's as we try to interpret 
where we go from here. I think all of those things are extremely relevant. Unfortunately, many people completely ignore the Luciferian conspiracy aspect of it, even though it's straight out of scripture, and they are locked into this right-left paradigm, this 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 us-them concept. So I just I find it interesting some of the quotes that you've given here that can I give you one more? Yeah, they validate some of this perspective that I'm trying to explain. So then he goes into the geopolitics, and I agree with you. The geopol the the three are probably working together. Yeah, and the prophecy thing kind of drags in the other two. Right, and some of it some of it is is God's plan too, that this stuff happen. Uh, so. Like one one aspect that I suggested, I don't think it was very popular, was that maybe part of the blindness of Israel to this coming up was a spiritual blindness. That we know that this has been true throughout Israel's history, if we read the Old Testament and everything. So, you know, it, you, all this stuff is it's like this very multi layered. Um, I don't know if I would say omelet or cake or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of different pieces moving together. But this is another thing from Kadar's article. Now, mind you, this is six weeks ago. And then he goes, he has a section called the International Arena. I'll just read one paragraph. Russia and China, Iran's allies, will call on both sides to cease violence, will support Iran almost openly and provide it with information about what is happening in Israel. Mm. Turkey will join the call to cease violent actions but will implicitly support Iran. In the Arab and Islamic world, crowds will come out for demonstrations of support for Iran and its action to eliminate the Zionist entity, similar to the, supporting, the support the crowds gave to Hassan Nasrallah in the 2006 Lebanon War. And it's not similar to what happened in the 2006 Lebanon War. It's way beyond what happened in the 2006 Lebanon War. I mean, I saw a video this morning of Jewish students at Harvard hiding out in the library because they were going to be attacked by Palestinian, pro-Palestinian mobs at mm. Harvard, mm. the supposedly the citadel of learning in the United States. So this is, but it's just interesting. He says that, and I do think that Russia, China are all part of this too, and that kind of gets us into the whole Ezekiel thirty-eight, thirty-nine, and Psalm eighty-three. Yeah, I, I was just going to, and and that type of thing. The IDF announced last week that uh, there was an article at Ynet and it said, listen, if you, if you come after um, Damascus or uh, Syria, Assad, if you could, we'll, we'll destroy you and we'll flatten Damascus. Hmm. They right. actually said that. <laughs> that sounds strikingly familiar. And with, within the context of those verses about the destruction of Damascus is also uh, something about the king will disappear from Gaza. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, you when know. you were reading that article from Qatar, you know, and you talked about Russia, Iran, Turkey, I'm immediately, my mind is drawn to Ezekiel 38. I mean, those are the nations. And then, you know, you got the Northern African nations, Sudan, Libya, Syria. I mean, this is, uh, this is you know, you can't help but wonder about the prophetic implications of all this, can you? And, and you know that uh, yesterday, Erdogan of Turkey, who, by the way, he happens to be two days younger than I am. So, um, so if if he, you know, you always wonder, okay, is this guy old enough to make it all the way through the seventieth week time frame? You know, like the Pope's don't think the Pope's going to last seven years, but that's that's near here there. But Erdogan was supposed to come to Israel for meetings with Netanyahu. Those are completely off now, mm. and but I've never trusted Erdogan. I 
was at a proxy conference, just an attender, had to be 15 years ago. It was in Phoenix at a Lutheran church, if you can believe that. And the speakers were, I think, uh, David Hawking, Chuck Missler, Bill Koenig, hmm. and maybe Roger Oko. But so we ended up, end up at the pastor's house for dinner after the conference on Saturday night. I got invited over and I was sitting at the table. It's just Bill Caney, Chuck Missler, and me. So I'm going to, I had a lot of respect for Chuck and he had become a good friend. And so I thought I'll pick his brain. I said, Chuck, do you ever get excited about Bible prophecy? You know, the things you see going on in the world, this is 15 years ago. And he said, well, I'm watching Turkey. And when I see Turkey start to go way is the Islamist side, then I'm going to get excited. So I've been tracking Erdogan. I actually wrote an article for Bill years ago for his uh, weekly newsletter about Erdogan in Turkey. So I've been watching them. So Erdogan came out yesterday and said the meeting's off and Hamas is not a terror organization. It's a liberation organization to help protect the oh. Palestinian people. Let's and I mean, there's a there's a big long speech. It's about thirty minutes. I downloaded it yesterday, and the, somebody had summarized it in in Turkish, so I can translate it. I'll share that in, probably in my update on Sunday. It's one of these things. Like when I get when I get to Sunday, I try to keep it to an hour and a half, but as a result, I have like 150 slides that never get seen every Sunday anymore oh, yeah. because so I, much is going on. But it was interesting. If you track Erdogan, he's a radical Islamist. He memorized the Quran. He won awards for reciting the Quran when he was a young guy. He used to stand on the bow of ferries across the Bosporus and recite the Quran, like sing it. You know how they do. He did this. There's a video of him going to London a few years ago to dedicate a big mosque in London, and he's reciting the Quran. It's very creepy. He took over the Hagia Sophia, the, the largest church in Christendom there in Istanbul a few years ago and turned it back into a, we didn't say it's a mosque, but it's a mosque. And he goes there and does the prayer and he brought the Pope in to do prayers there. That was kind of interesting. Mm. But the, the critical thing about Erdogan is what does he think about all of this? And so in Bible prophecy, we, we have Ezekiel 38 and 39, but we also have Daniel 11 with the King of the North and the King of the South and who are who identifies those? Now, a lot of people say the king of the south is Egypt. Go look at Twitter and the huge videos of these massive armies of Egyptians were ready to, to fight. Nobody's yeah. attacking them. They don't want the Palestinians, though. In fact, the most heavily fortified part of the Gaza border is the one that is on Egypt's border with Gaza. Mm. They don't want these people either. They're blocking the exit. And they, that's how a lot of these weapons and everything get into Gaza is through that crossing. Uh, they're smuggled in under the so-called watchful eye of the Egyptian guards. But it's all Muslim Brotherhood kind of operation, I think. Yeah. But, well, let's let's talk about uh, Erdogan for a little bit more here. You know, I've been calling him out in my latest book. I talked about how in the mid-1990s when he was mayor of Istanbul, uh, he famously said, democracy is like a tram you ride it until you arrive at your destination, and then you step off. And uh, I believe he's been a puppet in the in the Luciferian plan all along to usher in a one-world system. And it, Turkey is clearly a, a key player in Bible prophecy. What I can't understand, and I'd love to get your insight on this or your opinion, uh, why in the world is Turkey still part of NATO when so much of what they've done, even going back to their decisions with the Ukraine war, 
seems contrary to what the official narrative of NATO is. Erdogan is playing. He is masterful at. Uh, I do think there's a evil spirit behind him. He plays all sides, and he's. Everybody says he's done. He's finished. He's not coming back. They have that massive earthquake. Those two earthquakes last year, which Japanese people came out and said, those are the strongest land earthquakes in human history. Mm, wow. And he survived that. He won, and he actually won bigger than anybody thought he was going to win in the runoff. Hmm. So I'll give you an example of him. Um, I, I agree 100% with you. I think he's a very important person to look at. And there are people coming up behind him that are like him that he's trained. He has a son. Uh, he has a foreign minister who's very much the sort of does his dirty work. But if you remember back to December of 2017, Trump, and something that I think I agree with him on, Trump decided in December 6th of 2017 to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Yep. Now, it's the capital, so it should have been. But the U.S. was the first one to do this. And it was a big deal. But go back and look at the Turkish newspapers, and including a, a Turkish newspaper called Yenis Effect, which is Erdogan's sort of one of its main, his main propaganda mouthpieces. And Yenis Effect, every day they had a picture of the Dome of the Rock, Al-Quds. Mm -hmm. We have to protect Al-Quds, Jerusalem, from this attack. And about a, four or five days into it, in Yenis Effect, on the website, you know, we go to we go to proxy conferences and everybody's got their Ezekiel 38 map, you know, or their Psalm 83 map. I am telling you that Erdogan, I've got a high resolution version of it. I've used it many times, published on the website. What if all the Muslim armies came against Israel? And it's like the best Ezekiel 38 map of huh. anybody I've ever seen. Huh. It's got little red Israel the sea of green Islamic countries, including the Central Asian stand republics, by the way, which are Turk, Turkmenish, and I think will be part of this invasion, um, in, in this Ezekiel 38 invasion. And it's all, you know, it's airplanes and missiles and tanks and everything pointed right at Israel. And, and hmm. it goes over to Libya and Sudan and all these other places. All, you know, now it did include Saudi Arabia, but I don't think Saudi Arabia is really part of this. For obvious reasons, and I think this peace agreement deal is is part of that. But it, like I said, that was his response to just moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Hmm. What's his response going to be when the carnage in Gaza continues to build? I mean, Jimmy, they killed fifteen hundred terrorists inside Israel. Hmm. So when they come out with their, I think the latest uh, death toll in Gaza was 3,800 or something. I don't know if they're including the 1,500 killed in Israel or not. I, nobody seems to be, I haven't figured out who's counting them or not counting them. So this, um, I mean, imagine that 1,500 terrorists <coughs> killed inside of Israel. Absolutely yeah, I mean, that would be like having, you know, 30,000 or something like that by comparison killed in America, which, by the way, send me that that chart. I'd love to plagiarize it. I mean, use it in my uh, oh, anytime. <laughs> I'll send you that. I'll send you the cutter. Yeah. Thing. I'll um, send you the link to uh, uh, Dr. Kadar's article. 
But in the time we have left, let's let's shift our focus to kind of the United States and just what's on everybody's mind in terms of what happens next, where this is headed. Do you think there are similar numbers, or let's just say that there are terrorists sleeper cells in America, and is it just a ticking time bomb until they uh, start lashing out? What What are your thoughts about our homeland? You know, I've watched the videos that Michael Yan and um, Ben Bergwam have been putting up about what's going on on our southern border. And some articles today, I think um, Ann Coulter, another conservative female writer, um, maybe it was Monica Crowley or somebody, estimating that the, the real numbers of people that have come into the United States could be 40 to 50 million. Hmm. We know it's at least 8 million or 12 million. And I look at the videos of these guys coming across the Rio Grande and other place. They're military age males and they're coming from all over the world. They're coming from China. They're coming from, and there's a lot of Palestinian Hamas types, other terrorist types, Syrian and that type of thing. And they flooded Europe a number of years ago too. And I think they're just biding their time for, I don't know the, the word to let loose. And so yeah. I, I, I tell people and I, I don't think people believe me. You need to be, if you're going out and about today, you need to be situationally aware. Mm -hmm. And Sean Hannity kind of said that on Fox News last night. When he was talking about this latest guy up in Maine. But this is Lewiston, Maine. This is a small town city in Maine you know, a college town, all of a sudden, you know, there are, I don't know, 18, 20 people dead in a, in a mass shooting. And the guy's still at large, the last I heard. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, who would have it, thought that? I mean, it's one thing to be situationally aware, but you wouldn't think in a little, you know, town of 30,000 people at a family bowling alley that you'd right. have to worry about that, you know? Right. And so I, I think this is coming. So, you know, I, I'm semi-retired. I left my law firm a year ago. I, I live outside of Columbus a little ways and I'm glad I don't go downtown anymore mm -hmm. to be honest. And I talked to somebody the other day who does, who works for a major bank in Columbus and says, I try to avoid it if I can, because when I was going down there during the Charlie Vector 019er situation <laughs> it was also the blm situation and they all the buildings in the state house my my office looked straight down in the center of the state capitol hmm. and everything was boarded up for the first two floors all the way around uh, state house square in columbus hmm. including the state capitol hmm. and i'm like wait a minute what what country do i live in yeah, America, what a country, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's like this everywhere you go. I mean, um, I don't know if this, I don't know, if, well, somebody's, it was in London speaking for five years ago, and some guys took us into, uh, we spoke up in the Central Highlands, so we had a conference up there, and then we went back to London for about five days, and as we're driving into London on the way back there for a few days, uh, one of the guys in the car said, "Yeah, here's the here's where we tell the joke. It's uh, we're in London now, and it's time to play uh, a game. Can you spot a true Englishman?" <laughs> and it's it sounds racist, but it's true. I mean, the we stayed we were four blocks from uh, Marble Arch, Speaker's Corner, in the in uh, I can't remember the name Hyde Park. Our, our and our the Marriott Hotel that we stayed at. 
I think it was called Marriott Hyde Park or Marriott Marble Arch. It's 50 television stations on the cable for the TV. 10 of them were Arabic language. Wow. Yeah. In London, this is the heart of London. I mean, Kensington Palace is just like down the street. Yeah. Buckingham's just a little bit over there. So the world's changed this. And so a lot of this Islamic stuff and the war and Syria and this, the immigration out and that type of thing. And, but one of the main guys to circle back to Erdogan, one of the main guys that's a flying the ointment there is Erdogan. And he's mm -hmm. playing everybody. He plays the Russians off. He plays the Syrians off. He plays the world off. He plays the UN. And now he's got this faux thing about, uh, what happened about Jerusalem, that he that he is a protector of Jerusalem. He wants to restore the Ottoman Caliphate, the last Caliphate. It's been 100 years since the Treaty of Lausanne. So he wants to undo all of that. And I'm just saying is if if er, if the, the theory that the Saudi peace agreement leads to some kind of a two state solution in er, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has proposed something called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, that would be like a true two-state solution. I, I don't know how far it will go. He's proposing, but he's also wanting to get control of the Temple Mount back. And he also says the Temple Mount's not that important to Islam. And part of it is economic. He wants to promote Mecca and Medina, where he's built in Mecca, the largest right. hotel in the world and the second largest hotel in the world. And he wants everybody to come, all the Muslims to make their pilgrimage to Mecca, not Jerusalem. So... But if he does say just something on the Temple Mount, maybe something will happen there with Jewish ability to do something on the Temple Mount. I am telling you, that sounds very much like the King of the North, King of the South conflict in Daniel chapter 11. Yeah. So I'm just saying is all these kind of things, I I really don't have a integrated timeline of how all these things play out. I know they play out. I know they're all interrelated, and I think at some point we'll be able to look back and say, "Oh, that's how all that stuff was going to work out." Yeah, but I mean, we all have... these major players are on the on the table right now. I no mean, right doubt. now, no doubt. Yeah, it's it's stunning, and you've you've really elucidated that quite well with some of your you know headlines and things. It's even even uh, worse than I thought. But yeah, there's no question that the we start with the Bible. There is a biblical script for human history, and we call it Bible prophecy. And then you look at the Luciferians' plans, which obviously is subservient to God's plans. The Luciferians can never thwart or contravene God's plan, but the things that they're doing, you know, must fit within the broader script of God's plan of the ages. Uh, and then, you know, you look at geopolitics and, and your discussion of, of Erdogan and his, well, he's, you know, playing all playing all sides and so forth is a perfect example of the the geopolitics of it you know he, he you've got people that are building hotels in strategic locations for personal gain power wealth uh, there's other influences sex all kinds of underworld stuff that people do for personal uh, uh you know debauch reasons uh so it's again it's not monolithic it's not like the luciferians are in control of every government agency in the world there are a lot of complex issues here and uh you know, but to, to bring it back to the United States, what, you know, where do you see if you had to give it your best guess? And I know, you know, we're not prophets. We're all looking at the same data, doing our best to to, to speculate. But do you see this thing uh, that's happening right now in Israel as they try to defend themselves from this horrific terrorist attack? Do you see it 
growing and expanding and essentially evolving into a global war? Or do you think it might simmer down and for a while before we go to the next phase? So if I was, um, you know, um, giving you odds, sort of like uh, the points in a, in a NFL uh, line on, uh, you know, you're going to bet on Sunday. Um, listen, I, I think the odds are that this there's no going back from mm. this. Mm. I, I just don't think it's going to simmer down. I, I don't see that I, because, listen, Israel already is facing a tremendous amount of Jew hatred and anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's coming from people in the so-called evangelical church. Yep. I mean, the stuff in my feed is just unbelievable from these people and they're out there on channels and they're, they're putting out all the anti-Semitic tropes that have come about since uh, Olivier Melnick and I did something a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about that and, you know, Olivier's big on anti-Semitism uh, written a book about it. And I, I'm just telling you, it's unlike anything that I've ever seen. And the the question is, so where does it go? I mean, I don't think our government, well, they, we've sent aircraft carriers over there and supposedly 20, 30,000 troops are on their way or have already arrived. I, I don't see us there on the side of Israel. I see this there as more of a restraint on Israel to keep Israel from going to too far. But I don't think Israel is going to pay attention to it and they're going to go into gaza and they're going to do what they have to do but then the question is they go into gaza and they do what they have to do anti-semitism will go will spike yeah. mm -hmm. like you've never seen now what happens is if iran and and even russia came out and said you know don't mess around with the north but there's more rockets up there now, I did see a little blurb today that maybe Iron Beam is ready to be te field tested, which would be very helpful, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be broad enough. It has a limited range and everything. So it's Iron not Dome, right? Well, Iron no, Dome. there's a thing called Iron, Iron Beam. Beam in the north. Yeah, it's a laser system and okay. it's, it's much cheaper. It just uses electricity, but it, it has limited range of a kilometer or mile. So you'd have to have a lot of them all over the place. And I just don't think they can roll it out that quickly. Is that coming from the U.S.? Is that what we're bringing over there, or is that something? No, we're we we're bringing over a thing called THAD, T-H-A-D, and I don't know what the T-H-A-D, an acronym, stands for. And we're supplying them with additional Iron Dome missiles. But the, the advantage of – so the Iron Dome costs about $100,000 per missile to shoot down. So they build a missile for $2,000, and Israel spends $100,000 shooting it down. That's not – really good the economics don't work there hmm. iron beam can do it for like 20 dollars. i see okay yeah but it's just it's not operational it's put out by a company called Raphael systems and i i'd have to dig into the ownership of that of some people called the ofer brothers or something or israelis and there was some big scandal with the one of them who died about 12 years ago about selling technology military technology to iran so i guess amazingly some people seem to play both sides of the issue uh it sounds very yeah. similar to what ibm did and back in world war ii and that type of thing oh, which sure. would go back to the elites that you talked about no doubt and, they're uh, always and, playing both sides of every war they, they right. love war so i look i think that the concern is with they go into gaza i think the delay is because they need to prepare the ground they're looking at some things like they have hostages there that they're trying to protect, but I just don't know that they can worry about that forever. Um, 
I think you just have to assume those those hostages are not going to come back at this point because uh, they're used by Hamas to delay things. And our government seems to say, oh, delay, let's put in humanitarian. You can't put humanitarian aid in there because it'll end up with Hamas. We'll just use them to drag this thing out. But there could be thousands of IDF casualties in an invasion of Gaza. But then intel reports that I've seen in the north are invasion uh, casualties in the 25,000 to 35,000 range of Israelis dead, civilians yeah. and IDF. And that's a that's a difficult thing to do. So I, I, I worked a little bit with a group called IDSF, Israeli Defense and Security Forum, founded by a guy named Brigadier General, retired uh, from the IDF, Amir Abibi, and he's doing daily briefings right now. And I talked to him when I was in Jerusalem, but he has a very interesting article up at the IDSF website. It's in it's in Hebrew, but you can translate it. And it's called uh, The Day After Hamas. First of all, he says this, Israel's concerned that they don't have enough people to do the North, Gaza, and we forget about the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, and we forget about the Israeli Arabs within Israel. I've been shared emails from people in Jerusalem, and they're telling me that there are Arabs walking around Jerusalem taking pictures of apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is this has been happening here in the U.S. I took a picture of a guy once, and it ended up at Homeland Security downtown Columbus, hmm. taking pictures of. It was a sixty-two degree day, and he had a balaclava on. <laughs> And a shirt about this color, by the way, but it was like a muscle under armor shirt. The guy was built like an Ohio State linebacker. <laughs> and he had a full face. His face was covered with this balaclava. <laughs> and that was six, that was seven years ago that <laughs> I took that picture. And I know it ended up at Homeland Security. I called the police. They're, they're doing this in Jerusalem now. And there's a concern that what happens if the Israeli Arabs who we've lived with some of them, not all of them, there are a lot of good people that love Israel and everything there. But what if there are some of them that are Hamas supporters? Right. And they end up doing what Hamas did in Jerusalem. And then you have the West mm -hmm. Bank. Do you know, JB, in the West Bank, since October 7th, in this three-week period, four-week period, they've killed more Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs, in the West Bank than in any four-week period in many years. Mm, yeah. And you don't even hear about that on the news because they're rolling up terror cells and operations. So what happened if the West Bank or the Israeli Arab areas of Israel cut loose, like, you know, East Jerusalem mm -hmm. and that type of thing? What what? So the concern Amir Avivi has is, um, do we have enough manpower? And can we withstand this? We have to do this. We have no choice. He says, we've got to go in. We've got to get it to God. So just go and get it done. But then he wrote a very insightful article was the day after Hamas. What happens when they do go in and roll up Hamas and they have Gaza with 2 million people? What, what do they do? Egypt's not going to help. Jordan's not going to help. The UN's not going to help. They've been training these guys. In fact, at least 200 of the dead terrorists were trained in UN-sponsored schools in Gaza. Mm. Mm. They went to those schools. And they were trained in terror 
and hatred of Jews. And now we have the UN guy who's a socialist, Guterres, yesterday saying, oh, well, you know, we understand that, you know, the oppression of the Palestinian people led to this. We right. don't support what they did, but we understand it in that context. Yeah. And that's this is the world stage. So does it sound like a world where all nations, Jerusalem is a burdensome stone, and all nations will be gathered together against Israel to divide it? And I'll bring them down into the Valley of Jehoshaphat and Joel. Yeah, yeah. Because they have divided my land. And so I do think, I do think this is it. And I, and as soon as I say this, and it'll get out there maybe, and all these anti-Israel, anti-Jew people will be saying, oh, well, they just celebrate the death and destruction that's coming in the world. No, no I don't. No, I don't want this to happen. No. If it was my, that's not how I'm going to do it. But I read Revelation, and I see a place where Satan is kicked out of heaven, and he goes forth with what? great indignation great wrath yep it's almost like he's been holding back too right till that time when he knows this is the last chance that i have yeah no i i couldn't agree more i we're out of time but i just want to kind of surprise <laughs> what you're what you're saying here is because i agree uh, that i think israel has no choice but to defend herself they're going to go into gaza um there and that's going to incite the furor of all the anti-Israel nations and forces and people. And you're already seeing the stage being set for that through the mainstream media, the global uh, milieu of of just people talking about how terrible Israel is. Somehow, these horrific Hamas terrorists, you know, just did some of the most unspeakable things you can do. And yet, there are people out there talking about Israel as the aggressor. It's hard to fathom how they can morally. You know, equivocate on that, and yet that's what's happening. And sadly, the dumb sheeple of the world are just out there soaking it up. And so the the narrative is going to be that this there's that Israel is uh, you know at fault here, or certain or partially at fault, or whatever. That's going to be the narrative. And so then then you're going to see you know things flare up in the north. You're going to see I think Iran get involved, Russia get involved. Uh, you know, I agree that that. You know, with no confidence in Biden, in Biden, uh, and I can't count on him to support Israel. But I think understanding how the U.S. plays a role in the Luciferian conspiracy and the the, the top level globalists that are really fomenting war, I think they will eventually uh, be full on engaged in this war. Uh, not just because we have to and want to support Israel, but because of other interests of ours that are being attacked. And I guess what I I'm watching for is to see if, because we know Biden's and the the progressives' view on Israel is is not generally supportive, if they're going to do something else to in in this sort of Hegelian dialectic concept of to get American support for entering the war, such as attacks on our homeland. I, I think that's a very real possibility. So, well, we've been talking with John I Haller. Right. I think I think you're right, JB. Yeah, well, I man, I, I appreciate it. I'm not a very good host because I should have been mentioning throughout the program that we were talking to John Haller. But I guess my guess is most of our audience knows him quite well and recognizes uh, his voice right away. But John Haller, you can check him out on Rumble at Real FBC. You can search for the Fellowship Bible Chapel app. On the App Store, his YouTube channel, Fellowship Bible Chapel, and of course the website fbchapel.com. But John, you are just such a, a gracious guest, and I appreciate you your valuable time. And I'd love to have you on again sometime if you're willing. And um, 
Uh, but uh, for the rest of you, thanks so much for for joining us. Don't forget, check out notbyworks.org. And uh, don't forget tomorrow, a special Saturday podcast. We've got Randy and Shane on together, our World Events Update uh, uh, weekly guest, Randy, uh, geopolitical expert, and then Shane, our resident technologist, who we also have uh, weekly or semi-weekly programs with. They're going to join me together to talk about technology and warfare. That's a Saturday uh, morning, tomorrow morning, so watch for that. Well, God bless you, everyone. John, God's blessings, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Right.